Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast that dials in on some of the basic tenets, principles, and overall ideas in Army doctrine. Hello, I'm Major Rich Deagle, and today on our show we'll be discussing battle rhythm. This will be the first of two episodes on knowledge management, or KM, that will be hosted in coordination with the Army Knowledge Management Force Modernization proponent here at Fort Leavenworth. Our guests on today's show are Brigadier General Charles Mazarakia, Director, Mission Command Center of Excellence. Brigadier General Mazarakia has twice commanded at the brigade level, most recently as Commander, 3rd Security Force Assistance Brigade. As Director of the Mission Command Center of Excellence, he is charged with Executive Agent Responsibilities for the KM Force Modernization Proponent. Colonel Retired Mr. Rich Creed, Director, Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate. Mr. Creed served 32 years in the active Army in various leadership positions from tactical to strategic levels, including Brigade Command. As the CAD Director, he is the Combined Arms Center Commander's Executive Agent charged with oversight of the Army Doctrine Program. Lieutenant Colonel Promotable Michael Barnett, Chief, Experimentation Branch, Capability Development and Integration Directorate. Lieutenant Colonel Barnett, a Simulation Operations Officer, Functional Area 57, served as the Knowledge Management Officer for both 1st Infantry Division and 8th Army, and is a primary select for the Senior Service College in 2022. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Very good to be here, Rich. Thanks. Thank you very much. So, Battle Rhythm. What is it? A Viking death metal band? A symphony of collaboration and efficiency? Or organized chaos? Is it functional? Is it nested? Or is it one step short of disaster? These are a few of the topics our panel will discuss today. I'd like to open first with Mr. Creed as the director of CAD to doctrinally define the term. Sir, what is a battle rhythm? All right, Rich, well, we've got two sources that talk about battle rhythm and doctrine. The, the first one's joint, and so joint doctrine defines battle rhythm as a deliberate daily schedule of command staff and unit activities designed to maximize use of time and synchronize staff action. So that's pretty simple. Um, the Army uh, doctrine is a little shorter. It's a, a deliberate daily cycle of command staff and unit activities intended to synchronize current and future operations. So it gets to the purpose in the Army definition, which we think is important. It's more than just scheduling. It should be fulfilling a purpose. And so informally, we, we all think about battle rhythms in terms of our experiences in, in various echelons of, of command and staff. Um, what I always think about is the things that make up the workday for the commander and staff and give it focus is, is kind of how we look at it informally. So I, I'd like to just chime in on that. Uh, I think you just heard the doctrinal aspect of it. Now from the practitioner side of it, I would tell you that we looked at it as two different things. One, it was the commander's uh, decision-making synchronization tool to make sure that he was always prepared to make the decisions when he needed to make them. And the second was it was our method of ensuring that our higher headquarters uh, requests for information were answered on time. So think of USRs. We know in a USR all of our information has to be input. So there's three meetings prior to that that have to take place to make sure that everything is correct before going up. And that was the tool that synchronized that portion of it. So it's kind of like the, um, the non-visual representation of a common operational picture. Absolutely. Each time that you have one of these, you should be improving your common operational picture depending on what the focus area of that, that particular event or meeting is. What I used to keep in mind was, it's what does the commander need to know? And, and one of the things that we learned from our experience in Iraq in 2016 was, what does the boss need to know about the operating environment to make timely decisions in an accurate way? Then this way, the staff actions, their running estimates that they were keeping throughout the day were ready to be briefed uh, in, in any environment. Um, whether it was digital or analog, those staff had something that they could use. Well, I think the, the difference in the definitions between joint and army is important because, again, we get to uh, the cycle of command staff and unit activities. And the activities means a lot, and it's not the meeting itself, right? And, and so meetings aren't work. It's, it's, they can create work. 
they could take people away from work. But the, the, the work of the meeting is sharing that information and, and enabling the commander to make better decisions. But that battle rhythm encompasses things outside of the meeting, and it should include the time necessary to create the products for the formation that you're leading uh, to execute the things that they need to do in the context of the operations that are going on. Uh, and I think that gets lost sometimes when people are new to a particular echelon. They, they tend to focus on, well, how many meetings do we have to have, which ones during the day, and they forget about all the stuff that has to go on in between. We're not having meetings for meeting sakes. We're having meetings to give guidance so that we produce those kinds of things that the unit that you're leading can use. I'll tell you, our, our, our first eye-opening experience was when we laid out all of the meetings on the whiteboard that needed to take place, or we thought needed to take place. It ended up spanning 24 hours a day for about six days of the week. It, there was no white space for work to be done in preparation for those meetings. We had to figure out who attended what meetings so work could continue being done. And then really, the driver to this whole thing was the seven-minute drill slide. Who attended, what they were prepared to brief, what the outputs were, the duration of the meeting, and who owned the meeting. Uh, without that, you know, we were just all over the place. That, that agenda, strict adherence to that agenda, helps save people a lot of time. There were, there were instances where you hear, well, that's an hour of my life, I'm not getting back. Part of the things that I would look at as a, as a KM, hearing some of those things would be covered later on, would be, well, do you need to be at that meeting? Or is your staff proponent adding any value to that? If you're not, then why are you there? Maybe I can give you that hour back. Right. Uh, that was part of the KM analysis looking at those seven-minute drills, are the right people in the room? Are they value-added? Are they part of the inputs or outputs? Um, when we looked at targeting as the, as the big meeting, um, I have a, uh, someone had told me a while back, you know, targeting is everything, everything is targeting. So when you looked at the target decision board and worked your way back, that helped you better understand what meetings you needed, helped give the staff some white space back, allowed them to do their work, and it, it helped the general flow of the day where staff proponents weren't running from meeting to meeting to meeting. Well, and if you can spend the time between the meetings doing more than just prepare for the meeting, right? So the preparation for the meeting should not be inordinately focused on um, the quality of the product, the, the formal nature of the product. You know, we're going to have these standard slides, and really it's about communicating the, the information as succinctly and quickly as possible uh, and clearly. Um, and that what you're actually communicating is not the briefing, but you're communicating the work that's being done to facilitate that decision-making, which is a little bit different. And when you're inexperienced on the staff, you're really just focused on, I need to get my slide done. Okay, well, your slide's done, but when you're talking to the commander, he's going to want to know or she's going to want to know a lot more than what's on that slide. And so did you do all the work necessary to, to hit and address those top-line uh, things in, in, in the level of detail necessary to, to make a decision and oftentimes the answer is no like, oh sir i'm gonna have to get back to you well, okay although our division commander was very visual uh like like products like to be able to see things uh he did not want you briefing off of a script and he did not want you briefing off of a slide he wanted you to stand in front of the uh, the targeting board and have a conversation with him which leads to a second aspect of it is some of this is personality driven so who did the commander feel comfortable being briefed by? So sometimes it wasn't the primary, sure. which kind of puts the staff in kind of a, a spin with, okay, so who was supposed to be handling the meeting with, with CORE when we were going through one of our meetings? Uh, never to the targeting decision board, because that was always offset, but all the other lead-up meetings would conflict with higher headquarters meetings. Yeah, the, the way in which the leaders um, best accept the information is huge, but and then sometimes I think over experience, particularly during the course of an exercise, and then it's a new team, and then as you get more experience, and then you have subsequent things will change because people are like, Okay, I got it, that, that's not working for me, um, this is too formal, and all that. And, and your point about not reading off a script, the scripted ones are the worst, and and, and so. It gets back to the old General Perkins saying is the best way to prepare for a briefing is to know what you're talking about. So just be expert in your lane on all the things that are going on, and then you're capable of answering any question and telling the boss what, what he or she needs to, to know. And it changes over time. 
Yes, sir. When we got into country, it was a very formal meeting where we were making sure that we were hitting it block check by block check. And the more comfortable he got with the intelligence, the information, the manner of operations that we were conducting, the more informal this meeting became and the manner at which he was briefed. But the, the battle rhythm did not change because that's just the manner at which we conducted some of those meetings. Well, and I think because um, Colonel Burnett talked about the you know, experience in Iraq in real life, you know, the, I've never been anywhere during real world operations where you did meetings the same way you did as in a warfighter exercise or, or, or a training event. Um, because there's a sense of urgency that works into that. You're not actually having a bunch of people observing you either, right? So I'm not trying to check all the blocks. I'm just trying to get after the mission and what needs to happen. Um, and I, I think sometimes we forget that and it's almost like, well, I'm in the training mode, so I've got OCTs watching me and I'm gonna make sure I check all these things, which is a very different dynamic than when you do it in real life when the only thing that matters is the outcome. Well, that's the, that's the criticality of the seven minute drill slides. Yes, sir. What, are you, what do you come prepared to discuss and brief? And then what are the intended outputs of this meeting? So it gets rid of all the extemporaneous stuff and gets down to why are we having this meeting? What decisions do we need out of the commander? And here's how we're gonna execute it. You're right, in the warfighter, we were very, very scripted. We had a check block, everything had to be done right. Once we got into theater, especially after we built comfort level, uh, then it was just making sure that we hit those decision points that we needed. That was also the, by looking at that, you also got to see what meetings you could reduce off the battle rhythm, what meetings can turn into maybe a desk side with just a few folks, or would be satisfied sharing that information via an email. You didn't have to bring the whole staff together just to hear one or two things, which again, now you're giving time back to the staff so they can do their job, keep their running estimates up to date, was, has been very helpful. When you need the interactions because seldom do you come out of one meeting and knowing everything you need to know to, to answer um, the intent of what the boss asked for. So you, you do need opportunities and there have to be those sidebar kind of things where someone's empowered to go back to the boss or the chief of staff, the DCG, whoever is providing the guidance and, and ask for some follow through. Hey, sir, I know you told us to look at this. Some things have changed. Um, is it okay if we do this? And what do you think about doing that? Do you got any other ideas before we, because we've got six hours before we got to talk to the boss again. Mm -hmm. uh, and there needs to be that kind of um, informal flatness within the staff to get after that. And I think your enablers are the G3 and the chief of staff, um, and, and usually the G2, I would think, as well, need to be the kind of people that ought to be able to go up and say, hey, boss, we got to talk about this real fast because we don't have time to wait eight hours to get a decision. Gentlemen, that was a great opening uh, discussion in regards to that, and that actually kind of leads into my next follow-on question. Based off of just kind of your overall experiences and across the panel, uh, do you have any good stories or vignettes you can share when either Battle Rhythm saved the day, Battle Rhythm was extremely successful, or when Battle Rhythm was, you know, chaos and failure? I'll start with chaos and failure because that's normally a better story. <laughs> Those are the best stories. Uh, battalion commander in a division uh, deployed, and uh, I was working for a different division headquarters, not our, not our own habitual. And uh, this specific division headquarters had a battle rhythm, and they they were very strict on they were never going to cancel a meeting. The problem is they were not very disciplined in the execution of these meetings. So very often we would go to a meeting and have a different set of questions asked of us than what was on their seven minute drill slide or what we were told to come prepared to talk about or to discuss or, or provide for a decision. Uh, there'd be meetings that we showed up for that they decided once we got to this meeting that we were gonna cancel it, that we didn't actually need to have this meeting on this day. When you're driving in a combat zone to get to a, head, a higher headquarters to, for a meeting and then it's canceled, uh, pretty frustrating. And then for the success side, I'd say the success side was uh, you know where Mike and I served together in, in this division uh, prior to deployment. Uh, we got very, very detailed instructions from the division commander who'd been a corps chief of staff and, and tasked to design a battle rhythm. Um, and, you know, I, I still carry in my book the, the, the guidance he gave us that day. He pulled it out when he, from when he was a chief of staff. He made it very clear to us how he wanted this thing set up and the, the steps that we would go through. And his, his point was, if you do this right, if you line up everything the way that we've drawn this up, 
You can take your battle rhythm and superimpose it on any higher headquarters battle rhythm and you're not shifting individual meetings, you're shifting entire blocks of time. So it's very easy for a staff to, to be incorporated into a different division or a different battle rhythm. Because we understand if the targeted decision board is here, we know all the preceding meetings that have to take place. So it's already done. We just need to know when we've got to brief those targets to core for, hi for hires approval. So just everything slides. I'll tell you, that was, uh, that was most beneficial because it took us weeks to get it right when we were in garrison. We executed it during two CPXs, one warfighter, and then we deployed into theater with it. And as promised, it worked just like that. We took it and just moved entire blocks of time and everything synchronized perfectly. Well, maybe not perfectly. Pretty good. It, it's the critical path is what General Masraki is talking about. Once you have that critical path of working it backwards, the decision board, the working group, to the synchronization meetings, once you have that, you can move your meetings in time so that they line up with your higher headquarters. In our case, we had we had a fall under 18th Airborne Corps for, for the warfighter, under, uh, uh, and then in, in theater when they were the CJTF, and meetings would get moved. Uh, it was more, very cumbersome during the warfighter because you've got a plan to go do and execute this thing at that time. And uh, as General Mattis said, they, they would cancel it or change the agenda on you. Okay, we go back to our running estimates and still continue to function. Where the chaos comes into play is when they take the 1400 meeting and move it to 1630, with or without doing the analysis on what that also affects, because it's the trickle-down effect. Not understanding what the critical path was hurts all those supporting meetings, because people are doing work based off of that your decision board and knowing what your higher headquarters has to do. When you break the critical path, that's when you have chaos, and then you have the staff running around, and it takes the discipline of the leadership to say, okay, hold on, let's go back to our battle rhythm, S settle back in on what we gotta do, we'll send somebody to core in one way, shape, or form, either live or virtually, get a handle on this, see what we really need to do at that point. But it's the critical path is what once, and they, they, they do a great job of this teaching is at the KM course, so I'll, I'll, I'll throw a plug out to the Army Knowledge KM course, they bring this up in their lesson plan, how to get after that, why, why it's so significant. And that ties back to ATP 601, when you talk about meeting management and why the seven-minute drill is so important and those inputs and outputs are so critical to knowing when the, when the meetings are and how they're dependent upon the inputs and outputs. When you talk, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is time management. And so uh, we always talk about one-third, two-thirds, right? You want to only use one-third of the time so your subordinate formations, and depending on what echelon you're talking about, if you go down, to, uh, you know, two levels down, uh, so division and thinking about the battalions, when you think about what one-third, two two-thirds in terms of planning execution, you can really put your, uh, your battalion and below echelons at a severe disadvantage if you're not disciplined. Well, Rich, I'll take that one step further. You might not get joint assets if you're not if you're not disciplined in executing your meetings because those those requests have to go up at a certain time on a certain day to be filled. Do you miss them? No one's reaching out for you asking you if you needed a few more minutes to get something done. There's other people that needed more, right? And they've already submitted and they're taking them. So first things first. Kind of. Yeah, I'll tell you that without any specific vignettes, the uh, the, the the most chaotic. Uh, battle rhythms that I've ever seen were the ones where you, the senior leadership, in, in this case the division, hadn't figured out which decision maker needs to be at what meetings. And granted, this was some number of years ago, and I think we've matured through that because we hadn't been focused on those kinds of fights. Uh, so that they were leisurely battle rhythms that took place over the course of a week uh, in an Iraq or Afghanistan counterinsurgency mode, not a OIR kind of thing. Uh, so there was never enough any pressure on anybody not to uh, be in two places at once, or very seldom. But once you get into this high op tempo kind of thing, and you've got battlefield circulation, uh, you've got the requirements of higher uh, and lower, uh, and a requirement for no kidding personal engagement with your subordinates on something other than a digital means, uh, 
you still have to start delegating certain things. And so which, which meeting uh, is, the, is the chief of staff good enough to be the decision maker, uh, the G3? Which meetings do all three, this, the CG and his two major henchmen? Um, and then that gets you into thinking about something else. And it's, um, do I focus on functional cell kind of information or do I function on the integrating cell kind of information? And so I want to talk about current ops, future ops plans and what level of guidance do I need to get for those kinds of things? Um, and what do I start with? Uh, versus, hey, what's my scheme of protection or my scheme of fires or, or you know, what's the uh, HPTL look like the next 96 hours? Okay, well, those are all important, but not everybody needs to necessarily be at each one of them. The, the last one, and, and General Maz and I were joking about this beforehand, was, and it gets to personalities, but you have to kind of figure out you know, you've got a G3, you've got a G2, you've got all these folks for a reason, and they ought to be able to synthesize information and provide it. And so do I really need four different people from the ACE briefing the CG at the BUB when the G2 ought to be able to do it or the deputy G2? And so it's the thing we used to call the parade of, uh, of the parade of briefers, and you would have everybody on the staff briefs, and then the commander would look at you and go, hey, I don't ever want to hear from that person again or that person again because they're not telling me anything that I need to know. So if they have something, you should be the one telling me. And let's keep this thing short and direct. Uh, I know everybody's participating, but everyone doesn't need a participation trophy in every battle rhythm event because it's a huge, colossal waste of time. So I, I want to go back to something because you, you start picking up some scar tissue for me. Uh, you're talking about authorities. And it became very apparent to us that we did not have an, an authorities matrix. Uh, because I was forward with the TAC in, uh, in Korea. The boss had the main back at Fort, uh, Fort uh, Riley. And I was on a completely different battle rhythm because I was on the Penn's battle rhythm. Uh, boss was back in the rear uh, in the field, in a field environment. So when I needed information, I was calling back in and we quickly found out that there were certain things that had not been delegated, so I couldn't get a decision fast enough to actually execute something in this exercise. Uh, for the next one, what we did, when we, that was when we were a, um, a response cell. When it was ours, that was like day two that we sat down and there was no decision that did not go at least four deep, minimal. There was nothing that could not get a decision off the talk floor at any given time. And I'll tell you, that provided enormous benefits. The second thing you talked about is the parade of briefers. Uh, something that we learned very, very quickly. You've got that guy or girl that is just incredible, and the boss likes them, and just they communicate well. Right. He wants that individual. The problem is that individual is not always going to be there. There's things that are going to happen. Life goes on whether you're deployed or not. Uh, so we went through some very painful days of, hey, Sergeant First Class is not briefing today specialist or sergeant is briefing today to get an opportunity to stand in front of the boss and you know behind closed doors i used to have to tell them before we walk on the floor sir it's going to be painful right but it's but a training we've event got right? to go through this so this right. individual gets because we're going to be split up all over theater once we get in country and you might not have every one of the people that you're comfortable with you know we have to develop people right i mean they don't get good at that uh, just by by accident i mean it's a they have to be developed from the perspective we had when i was in korea we had the terms of reference and it's yes. something we started to develop at 1ID just before I left there. That spelled out who was in charge of what, which definitely helped the, uh, the deputy commanding generals the, and the other staff uh, members as well. And we've had the example of, you know, Specialist Barnett is briefing Lieutenant General Bills this day. And it was prepped ahead of time, but it had to happen. And in some cases, that, that junior soldier did a really good job because they were confident, they knew the material, and when they got up to the mic, they, they followed the three B's, be brilliant, be brief, be gone, and ready for questions. Well, gentlemen, uh, looking at, we've actually answered some of my uh, further follow-on questions, specifically when we we're talking about one-thirds, two-thirds, and uh, in regards to nesting to ensure, you know, the battalions have time to get out their information, the division is receiving all of the reports that are necessary for them to, you know, continue mission, um, at, essentially some nesting type of questions and functions. I want to transition to my second all-time favorite Army acronym, the B2C2WG, after TIPFIT. 
Uh, not, not talking about Star Wars, not talking about droids. B2C2WG is broken out as boards, bureaus, center cells, and working groups. Uh, turning over to both Mr. Creed and especially Colonel Barnett, we've also talked about that seven-minute drill and some of the kind of key do-outs to ensure that your co-ops team can continue functioning, your foo-ops and your plants knows what's happening in the future. Uh, Mr. Creed, I'm going to turn this to you first. Um, B2C2WG, uh, what, what are the similarities and differences between them and why are they important? I will tell you, uh, General Maz talked about scar tissue. So one of the scar tissue things that, that we've uh, acknowledged in TRADOC for several years now, probably going back to when General Parkins and maybe even General Cohn, but they used to hate this acronym and they hated it uh, because they were okay um, with cells and working groups, right? Thinking in terms of tactical operations and large-scale combat up the core and, and below. But they really had a problem with this idea of boards, bureaus, and centers because um, that implied a leisurely uh, kind of almost uh, aristocratic kind of view of, you know, we're doing these things, it, it's this this panel or this body that's permanently, you know, formed and, and, and they do all these things in kind of a grand sequence instead of what they envisioned us that need to be able to do in division and core headquarters in fighting as formations against uh, a, a capable enemy that could kill us all uh, if we're not agile and, and mobile and, and maintaining small signatures and all those kinds of things. And so those words were problematic with them because they implied static they uh, implied uh, lack of sense of urgency in some in, in some cases, uh, but we kept them all in doctrine because they have the utility in, in other things. And, and so a reference here is uh, our ATP on command post organizations and operations. It's ATP six zero one dot five battle rhythms and meetings. Um, and so the differences really get to uh, level of attendance, uh, focus, and some of them are just. Um, you know, we, we talk about uh, targeting boards, but really they come across as targeting meetings. I mean, we call them a board. It's a board because of the, the different players that have to be there. Um, and there's a joint aspect to it, and then there's various forms of Army fires associated, and you need the, a, a G2 read uh, or an Intel read. Uh, and, and so there's a whole bunch of things that make them uh, the way they are. But generally, as you work down the acronym from boards down to working groups, it goes from more formal to less formal. Um, not always, but typically longer meetings to shorter meetings. Um, and then um, also in terms of the focus of where you're looking in time and space, the further to the left when you're talking boards, you're looking further out, uh, generally speaking, in, in time and space for execution. Uh, whereas when you get down to cells uh, and working groups, you're typically more future operations and current operations kind of focus. Now I'm oversimplifying that, but I'll let Mike get into uh, this because this is more his area of subject matter expertise. So the what we looked at when we started looking at the doctrinal examples, so they're also defined in uh, JP 3-33, where they tell you exactly what each happens in each meeting. Um, the, the board, best way to think of that is that's where the decisions are being made and they're supported by the working group at the other end of the spectrum. The cells and centers in the middle are, in a way, sort of like cross-functional teams. Uh, one thing I tried to train folks when I was in 8th Army was look at things from a cross-functional team perspective from, from the left of the spectrum, the longer-term look from plans in the G5 to the middle portion, which would be the FUOPs, the G35, and then ultimately to the, to the three where uh, in, the, in the near term, the 24-hour out. Um, that, that seemed very helpful. People were able to grasp that a little bit easier than trying to figure out which part of the B2C2WG I fall in under. And that uh, it, it helped the staff uh, better work with the battle rhythm in that regard. Um, very few, like you said earlier, uh, was the, uh, the bureaus, like a joint visitors bureau. Something very formal. People are going to come in and out. How are they being handled? Um, that, that's just one another a concrete example of one of the uh, letters in the acronym. But from decisions to action, from left to right, it's a good way of uh, handling that. Rich, you, you said something uh, from more formal to less formal. I completely agree with you. The only thing that does not change is discipline. Right. And, and I get to time management. What we found was 
once we instituted the seven minute drill into every meeting that we took place, people came prepared. That's a good thing. It can also be a bad thing because they're prepared to talk. And when a meeting is scheduled for 60 minutes, it's gotta end at 60 minutes. And I enforced that unless the boss was sitting next to me and he was into it. Uh, you, you have to stay disciplined, whether it is a formal or an informal meeting, because every time you go over five minutes, the trickle down effect to that last meeting could be, could be pretty big for the day. And the second one was, you know, the issues of this thing is it's complicated. So they stop putting meetings on a board and figuring out where they fit because it ties into the commander normally works a, he's got his own personal battle rhythm. He works during the day, daytime, unless he's got to do certain things at night. So what does that predicate? the primaries working that same time period. Right. Being there for all of the boss's briefings, being able to answer his hard questions, being able to take his RFIs back to their staff sections to be able to work them. The problem is when the boss goes down at night, that primary is the only person who's been taking all of this stuff in. He's also ends up being the only person who can work some of those issues throughout the course of the night. And we found out very quickly we were it was like a it was like a CTC rotation. We were just going to see how far we could go at eight, 19 hours a day every single day, except it was a nine month rotation. And we had to figure out that transition period. And it wasn't every staff section didn't transition at the same time. It was a it was a stair step or a waterfall effect of when we transitioned from primaries uh, to their deputies uh, in, in the say about halfway through. I think we got to a sustainable long term answer. But working up to that, you could tell there was just certain staff sections that were that were worn out. You know, I just got back from Fort Stewart where a 3ID just went through a warfighter and a JWA, and they did that very thing with the staff. They had, uh, just in the operations center at the, the division main, they staggered the shifts so that no one's uh, uh, staff section knew everything. And then this way, Everyone had an idea of what was going on that day. You didn't have this wholesale change. Everyone did a shift change at 07. It was staggered over several hours, which was very helpful. You, you brought up uh, just a trigger point for me. It was uh, The Sergeant Major actually came up with this idea. Why do you have the NCO and the officer transitioning at the same time at the, the, the nightly uh, bub or whatever it was? We offset by six hours. Hmm. NCO came on at 1,300. The officer came back on five or six hours later, so we had a good transition or cross-transfer of information throughout the course of the day. That actually was probably one of the best things we came up with to facilitate the transition from day staff to night staff. Well, and so there's another thing too, is typically the night staff is, is the more junior people, um, typically, not always. Um, but when you think about how you wanna fight, um, and you think about a peer threat and uh, protection as an outcome and, and movements and, and conducting operations during limited visibility as, as an advantage, as something that you use to, to, to lend protection to our formations. Uh, it, it's almost like there's a, a disconnect that we'll probably have some learning to do in terms of, well, what's happening when we wanna do most of our operations at night? Uh, or do we split them between the two and, you know, People being what people are like, when the, the big show's on, they want to be up watching the big show, which drives you towards adjusting the battle rhythm to support um, the operations that you're conducting. And so it's never, it should never be fixed. It always should be informed by, okay, we're, you know, we're doing this attack at night. So the battle rhythm's got to support that. And two days from now, we may be doing the river crossing during the day. Uh, okay, the battle rhythm has got to support that. And this continuous operations thing, I think, gets uh, lost outside of the real-world experiences that, that, that both of you recounted. Um, but that effect of, of the battle rhythm on, on the unit and, and soldiers and leaders on the staff is, is pretty tremendous um, because there's a lot of pressure in getting things right. There's a lot of people depending upon that, those things being right. So people run ragged before you even get to the big the big show is not a good state of affairs. So how can you maintain a battle rhythm that is sustainable over a period of weeks or months uh, when it's a different kind of fight? Well, you bring up a good point, different kind of fight. In Iraq, when we were there with the division, we didn't do a lot of fighting at night. Right. We, the Iraqis just couldn't, they didn't want to. 
my, my last deployment as the SFAB commander, working with a, a corps, multiple uh, brigades, those brigades had their own personalities and capabilities. So my brigade staff was, we were fighting with multiple brigades, which liked a night battle rhythm, like the day battle rhythm. And I couldn't put a stellar group on day or a stellar group at night because you can't reset a, someone's cycle quick enough to, to turn like that. We had to figure out how did we make two very capable teams. I was the one who had to get comfortable, call it for lack of better terms, I had to get comfortable taking the B team when I was doing certain things because my A team was fighting and that was my main effort and I needed them awake at night. When it's easier at a smaller, uh, at a lower echelon, right? So if you're in a battalion, and battalions have staffs, battalions have battle rhythms, just like uh, brigades and divisions, they're just a little less complicated maybe. Um, but it's easier to adapt, okay? So I'm gonna, all right, we're doing our operations at night. And so, you know, when it was an American-led effort, in Iraq or Afghanistan, you did a lot of things at night. And so what did you do? Well, you adjusted your battle rhythm so that you got your meetings done and you, you could take take a nap uh, and get some rest before you started all that process for the 0-200 attack, right? So uh, that level of agility is, is easier, I think, to implement at a, without doing with what you said. I, I don't know how you get after it. I mean, you literally have to have two teams that are equally capable uh, and possibly three, right, sir? Because as soon as you start displacing command posts and so forth, now you've just introduced another level of complexity into the, the battle rhythm because our battle rhythms are essentially assume that you're not going anywhere in that 24-hour period. And, but in reality, we may have to move, and it may not be a plan. We may have to displace because the enemy's doing something. And so how do we adapt that battle rhythm um, to the fact that now we're all dispersed and moving in different places. How, how, what's the workaround? And I don't envy your job as a KM trying to figure that out. But. Well, we're in the battle lab, we're working on the uh, Command Post 2035 uh, tabletop exercise series of uh, limited objective experiments. And we're trying to look, and we're looking at that very thing. How do you take a division of core headquarters, spread it out over the, over the operating environment, so that you have key leaders in all those nodes be able to keep, keep pace with the, with the battle, um, have key leaders in the right places. So I'm just talking about wet gap crossing, talking about uh, you know, the fires planning, uh, sustainment and all, having those key leaders in the right places and also have the staff support behind that because if something happens to one particular node, who picks up the slack? When we had to jump the division main, uh, when, when we were at 1ID, Devardi took over the fight. It was, it was planned, rehearsed, rehearsed a few more times so that when the boss went over to Devardi, the continuity was 100%. Nothing was lost. Everyone picked up, our, picked up our kit. We drove to the new facility, set up, and then when we were ready, we took over the fight, and then Devardi was able to displace. And it was, again, we, we hear this word throughout this whole conversation. It was the discipline of the staff, and didn't matter whether it was officer or NCO or soldier. They knew what the plan was, and everyone could, was chipping in. Yeah, reconciling the battle rhythms in the different command post nodes. You know, I got a main, I may have attack, I've got a rear, uh, and then I've got the same thing. You know, if that's division, Corps got a, a similar setup, and then you've got the brigades uh, who want to be obviously participating in that division level battle rhythm event, or at least a couple of them, um, in any 24-hour period. But they got a lot of stuff going on, too. And it, we generally drive this top down. Uh, but sometimes I wonder if we, we should be more accommodating of a bottom-up perspective in terms of, well, you, you do want us to, like, do the attack tomorrow, right? Well, yes, sir, we do. <laughs> and I probably can't sit in this meeting right now. I, I, maybe I can do it in a couple hours, or I could do it this morning, but I can't do it right now. So let me throw some friction at you. The mobile command post. <laughs> Mission command on the move. Right. Now you're pulling certain key leaders out and they're, they're moving on the battlefield. They're, they're observing, they're fighting. Now what happens to everything else that, that's supposed to be going on, which there's some authorities that are only vested in the commander. By hire, he cannot delegate those any further. So now you're trying to pull him into certain things or you're just trying to brief him on very unique, specific things to get a decision from him on. Right. Well, so then the other armies, um, 
that we work with, particularly in NATO, they, they have uh, interesting ideas, the Germans in particular, I think the Brits do the same thing. And you, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I think there's an understanding. I mean, the commander drives the ops process, and that's what the battle rhythm supports is, is an ops process uh, and all its various components. Um, and in their armies, it's even more commander-centric than ours. Um, and then they leave, and they go and lead the formation from outside the command post, and they leave the chief of staff in charge. And so the G chief of staff fights the formation while the commander's out leading it kind of approach. And we do that at battalion level, mm -hmm. uh, at least on the mounted side, but I think on the, on the white side too, where when the commander and the three are out in their vehicles and they're you know, fighting the battle uh, with the companies, um, the XO's managing the fight in the talk. And we're comfortable with doing that with battalions, but I'm not sure we're always comfortable. I haven't been around enough I've only done that at division level a couple of times. But we never had to do that. So there was never a forcing function to, to decide whether that was how we were going to do business or not. Been in organizations where that worked extremely well and where it didn't work as well. And I'll tell you, it all comes down to the execution of mission command. Is that commander willing to allow the XO who's back there to make decisions in his absence based off of mutual understanding, discipline, initiative, and risk acceptance and a level of confidence right yeah, yeah, you, you got to add the seventh one that's where your confidence comes from is is that but you got to train and develop people to be able to do that i mean again some people can just step in for the first time and do a good job but uh if they've been a part of the organization for a long time and they are familiar with the situation that they're walking into but that's a, a difficult order for somebody that's coming in cold to to be able to step in and, and run the fight for the boss at whatever echelon you're talking. It's naturally an excellent transition into uh, my next question, uh, starting with uh, Colonel Barnett. We talked specifically about a lot of really dynamic challenges, dispersed command posts, uh, just the creep of a battle rhythm in any given day, pulling the staff proponents out of the fight and how to kind of balance, counterbalance some of those things. But one of the key things that are coming out, especially utilizing some of these uh, seven minute drills, is information to make decisions for the commander as well as for the staff to continue to kind of build and refine their products. Uh, Colonel Barnett, from a knowledge management perspective with all of our dispersed command posts and everything, what are some of the current or future capabilities and tools that will enable better mission command and uh, communications across a unit or force? So currently we're all uh, working with a system called Command Post Computing Environment or CPCE. Uh, it's the replacement uh, package from CPOF, which uh, probably a lot of us are, are very familiar with. Uh, CPCE allows uh, the staff to uh, build products, provide that, that common operational picture for the commander to make those decisions. Uh, I've seen it in the JWA, uh, saw it in Korea once. Uh, Korea, we used CPOF and Sydney. Sydney is the Combined Information Data Network Exchange. Uh, but that was the boss's decision. The, the future has uh, several other products. One is, is JADC2 that's being uh, developed uh, that I can speak for from my experiences. Uh, but it comes down to is how are you going to manage the information? How do you turn that information into knowledge that basically has been assessed by the staff? Uh, we're, still, we're still happily using uh, SharePoint as a, uh, an, inter an internet-like environment where um, common products like Excel and PowerPoint are still heavily used. Uh, I've used both those products at 1ID and 8th Army to, to manage our battle rhythm products. Uh, the seven-minute drills were a PowerPoint slide. Uh, my predecessor at uh, 1ID, uh, Major Dustin, actually took all those seven-minute drill slides and created a SharePoint environment where you can actually get to the detail of who needed to be at the meeting, not by name, but by staff, uh, the section within that staff. So that helped, again, the staff proponent manage who needed to be there and what was, what was going on. So there's still a lot of tools for that. Um, but that, that's kind of where we're going. There's still things in development that um, ACM, the Army uh, Capability Managers, are working on. Some other visualization tools that they're working on over at the National Simulation Center. So that, those help the commander, again, visualize what's going on the battlefield. So I always crack up when I hear CPOF, right? Because I, I thought even when the thing was fielded, 
uh, and it had a lot of powerful capabilities and, and some, some good ideas. But it's, a, it's an exercise in educating ourselves about coming up with naming conventions, right? So the command post of the future, I always said, boy, what are you talking about? We've been, we've been using it now for 15 years or so, and it's still the command post of the future. So now I guess it's going to transition to be the CPOP, the command uh, post of the past. Uh, and so hopefully we come up with better names. The, our allies and partners are really interested in, in the work that you guys are doing. Uh, we came out of uh, both NATO and uh, Five Eyes meetings over the last uh, month and a half or so. And a lot of interest in the command post computing environment and you know how they get to, to be integrated into that because um, we talk about the integration of the staff into the battle rhythm events, but we got to remember that our allies and partners are not going to have the situational awareness in that common operational picture if they're not integrated in it too. So I think that's really important work that, that, that you guys are doing for that. Once you get down to having a common data, that helps the staff also because uh, we've been in meetings where one staff section is talking about a, a particular level of a class of supply and another staff section talking about that same class of supply but at a different stockage level. And it was clear that the two staff members did not talk before the meeting, but the CG or the DC picked up on that difference. So that the having those common tools is definitely helpful across the staff. It did cut down the friction. Well, you, you started to pull pull it out a little bit. What happens when you're working in a multinational headquarters? Yeah, so we were We had 20-plus nations inside of our headquarters in Iraq, and every one of them had different authorities or classification levels, different systems of what they could see. I mean, there were certain meetings that we couldn't bring one of our partners into because he just couldn't be in that for the classification level. But at the end of the meeting... I would have to go back to him and ask him if we could use one of his systems to do an information act information advantage activity because it was going to take us three months to get approval to do it if we use our utilized our systems yeah so you can't be in the meeting but he but couldn't know about it right. <laughs> but i need you to do this thing you're know, like two mobsters in a phone booth right talking about it. it is this thing i gotta need you to use that thing to do this because but you couldn't come to the meeting right and i'll tell you it it hurts some feelings and it hurts some relationships when you've got to tell somebody who's forward in theater with you, who's got soldiers out on the battlefield too, that they cannot sit in a meeting. Let the command post we're at in, in Iraq was, you know, is you know the, the typical multi-layer, um, you know, rows system, and it was clear that you know some countries could not go past the first row. They were like, no, sorry, you gotta stay in the first row, please. The plebeians are down in the front. And, yeah. Yes, so it, it, it does create some, you know, the, there's tension there. Uh, but again, building rapport, as, you know, as, as your classification authorities allow, uh, sometimes can help work through some of those uh, differences. Yeah, I think the most unhelpful thing possible is to have a battle rhythm event. Um, and the, the, you know, all of your partners, say, for example, they, everybody can be there and everybody's supposed to participate. But because of a lack of connectivity or, or uh, a common operational picture, they show up at, at the meeting and everybody's got a different view of actually where you're at. And you almost have to spend, uh, and you probably use wise to check this out. We found this out in Korea too, is to check ahead of time to make sure, give them a quick rundown of where we're at so that they know that before the meeting starts. Otherwise, there's a lot of hands going up asking questions about but this is impossible. I did not know that, we, you know, because they didn't know and because the systems weren't interoperable enough for them to have the same shared situational awareness necessary to have a good meeting in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that, that takes some staff work and some anticipation by oftentimes junior members of the staff to ask the right questions of these folks and help them be ready for the meeting. The, coming at, when, just before we left out of Iraq in 17, the CJTFKM, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Martinez was a, he cracked a code on having uh, within the computing environment uh, Blixie, I think it was, um, or BICES, too many acronyms right now. But within that computing environment, he could segment out based off of classification. So he had uh, you, you could go to one computer monitor and based on your sign on would allow you to get into different security. So there was a there was a US no foreign, there was a five I. Uh, 5i plus France, 5i plus or minus whoever. And then because we had a very good um, security classification guide and the um, 
the matrix of you know, which countries were on which security sharing agreements, he was able to set up those networks, which allowed you to get to see more or less information. That definitely sounds like a key to enabling our partners, our multinational partners, to uh, participate in our uh, in a shared battle rhythm. Uh, but some other things to consider, we talked a little bit about the joint side, but also the interagency as well. And I, I kind of direct this co uh, question to both Mission Command Center of Excellence as well as CAD and knowledge management. How do we enable some of those capabilities to crosstalk, specifically uh, you know, NATO terminology or foreign disclosure? And I'll just kind of open that up to the entire panel. So I'll just start off with the first thing we've got to do is learn how to write for release. Right. Yeah, we we want to automatically default to safety and overclassify everything we do. And it makes it easier easy on the individual that's producing it. It makes it extremely difficult for everybody else that's got to provide that and share it to to drive that common operational uh, picture. And that's an army imperative. So I mean that's actually army policy. It's been like since 2017 when uh, G3 and G2 of the army did a joint map uh, to the force that said, you know, from here on out Everything we produce should be looked at to the maximum possible extent, written for release to allies and partners. I will tell you, Rich, that is why most division commanders, one of their critical information requirements is how many foreign disclosure officers do I have? Right. Because they know every staff section is going to overclassify what they've done for safety, that he's going to have to use his FDOs in every headquarters to make sure that information can get released. I think the... Uh some other considerations, and it gets to battle rhythm, but it gets also just to the work that supports the battle rhythm. You know, as you talk about anybody that's new to the organization, that's part of the pickup when you get there. Maybe they were there with the last organization. Maybe it's just a rotation. You know, mission command only works because of the seven proponents of it, and it takes time to build those. So anytime you're bringing in a new team, doesn't matter if they're they're it's a unified action partner or it's just another agency from our own government. It takes time to get them on the team and build the confidence, the trust, the mutual understanding that the boss is willing to accept prudent risk for them to execute some disciplined initiative. I mean, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes that's painful for that entity to understand why they don't get to just do what they might have been doing before, what they've trained to do until you get that, that level of comfort. It's the reps and sets that you go through. So at a, you know, at a division, when, you, when you're planning, you're back planning off of a warfighter, and you've got two to three CPXs before then, uh, or you're working out in the operating environment if it's prep for warfighter weeks beforehand, so you're comfortable in that environment. You're comfortable with your, you know, however many people are crammed into your into your small little card table. That helps you get your your head in the game of I don't have a desktop computer with two 34-inch monitors. I have my laptop. I have to work with this space. And if someone who's coming in from the outside is not accustomed to that, that's going to affect how they work, and which will then affect how they brief. So that you got to help help them get comfortable in that operating environment. When we started out before the warfighter, weeks beforehand, everyone was comfortable working out under canvas. And then when things transitioned from okay, you're going to go home every night to no, now we're staying out. It wasn't that that difficult of a transition. You went from your sleeping tent to your working tent. You were already prepared in some respects. You already had some muscle memory in what you had to do. You were climatized to the suck. Right. And then, and then you can always make it worse, right? So, so we, we ideally, all right, so now you're going to prepare for your battle rhythm event in this vehicle that's moving along at night. And you're prepping for that battle rhythm event, you know, in four hours when you get to the new location uh, using our Red Lens flashlight. Uh, in your laptop that's running low on battery power as you're trying to, you know, bounce it along in a vehicle on a, on a gravel road. So uh, there's always ways to make it harder. <laughs> and well, it's amazing how difficult it is even when you're in a comfortable garrison. You would so. think about, you would think that taking away some of the technology would actually make people's lives a lot easier. For instance, we had to execute battle drill loss of uh, all of upper TI. So we're going to execute this comms only above. You would think this should be relatively easy. They don't have to make slides. We're not, we don't have to worry about the CPOF working. We're going to do this on the radio. Oh, man. You want to talk about pain? That was probably one of the most painful meetings I've ever sat through. And on the back side of it, we were no better for executing that meeting because nobody was able to really understand uh, what, what had transpired and what decisions had been made. 
when you can't do that once, right? So, so you can do it once as the as the experiment, but what you really need to do is is make that some sort of a norm as a discrete training goal, because when you do things, when you don't have pictures and things to look at or imagery, you have to then be able to visualize, and it takes a while to train your brain to take spoken words uh, or spot reports uh, or even just updates, and then be able to visualize in your head looking at no more than maybe a paper map. Rich, I had to teach some very senior staff officers something I learned as a lieutenant when we executed that battle drill. Push to talk, release to think. The very simple things of operating on a radio. You can't keep the, the, the push to talk, push the entire three minutes where you're trying to think about how you're going to relay information. Yeah, Roger. That kind of violates the whole electromagnetic uh, spectrum detection kind of thing too. Our world grows a little bit more digitized each day, but it would be really great to get back to some classic processes. Um, however, if we're kind of like looking looking forward, especially as you know, we're tra transitioning a little bit more towards multi-domain operations, those highly technical and bandwidth crashing uh, domains of space and cyber are gonna to continue to be one of the key points that we need to discuss, analyze, and then be able to provide um, uh, basically, you know, capabilities and answers uh, to allow for the commander's decision making. Um, I'll, I'll start with uh, Colonel Barnett on this one. Um, smart battle rhythm capabilities. Are we kind of progressing towards those? Or are we still kind of maintaining that line of, or ma maintaining our classic uh, seven minute drills, especially when we're talking things that, you know, super technical areas? Um, do, you, do you have anything that you can? The, the, best, the best way to look at it is if you've got a really good analog system, seven-minute drill, and it's written out, you can digitize that into any system or any type of future capability you want. It's got to have that sound foundation. And the, I have the same card in my hand that General Maz had that we got from General Martin where he talked about the process. If you've got a good analog process, it can, it'll save you countless hours of, of work. So it, you got to have that. Uh, well, the segment, I think it, they eventually may evolve, but it's sound because it's got who needs to be there, what are you going to talk about, how long are you going to talk, uh, what's coming in to feed it, and what's going out to feed something else. Those fundamentals are, is what drives a lot of, of so many of our processes that, that helps those senior leaders make those decisions. I don't see that changing at any time soon. Um, machine, machine language and AI... It's just going to make those things go faster, but they have to have a strong foundational base and something that, you know, we sat down with, you know, pen and paper and wrote out. Um, when we did our battle rhythms uh, project at 1ID, it was sticky notes and a dry erase board, and the staff was able to move those meetings around so it made sense. Um, but in the future, we're going to have these new technologies. We're seeing them, uh, you know, being thought of uh, daily, but you got to have that strong analog. Uh, foundation to work off of. Yeah, it's a logic taxonomy, right? So we get asked all the time, when are you going to put AI in the doctrine or, or machine learning in the doctrine? Right? Well, when it tells us that we're going to do something differently than what we're doing. If it's just helping us do things that we need to do already better and faster, then that's great. I think the one thing that the, the battle drill that you talked about, sir, with the, hey, we're just going to do this voice comm or, or you know, which is really analog when you get right down to it, uh, and, and old school is, it drives you towards um, having a built-in appetite suppressant about what information I really need to know, right? Do I really need to have imagery on every single target that I'm gonna shoot at? And do I need to share it with everybody? I mean, the, we can continue to develop systems and processes and, and battle rhythm events to encompass more and more information all the time. But at some point, you know, when do you say, I've got enough information to make solid decisions faster than the bad guys are, uh, and let's do that. You know, at some point, there's got to be good enough. And I think um, staff officers like the G2, the G3, the chief of staff, the DCGs, uh, and the CG have to collaborate on that because that drives the content and timing of those battle rhythm events, but more importantly, what you want everybody focused on. Because uh, a lot of times you can do, you know, there's, there's an art to our profession and the things that you do, 
And I don't need to have even 90% of the information necessarily to practice the art fairly well. A lot of times, really good uh, folks only need a 60 or 70% and they can kind of figure out what needs to be done. Because if you can move quickly and execute violently, um, you're going to shape things the way you need to and you end up learning what you need to know anyways. I'm not saying that we don't want to, to pursue uh, ever greater abilities to process information. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying at some point during a battle rhythm, you got to know when it's enough and then enable the boss to make a decision. Uh, otherwise, you get that paralysis by analysis and, and we get overwhelmed with all kinds of things. And no one or five KMs in the world can uh, accommodate somebody that wants to know everything. I just well, that's one of the areas that we're working on with inside of MCCOE is uh, data analytics. And I can tell you, one of the things we're looking at is about 70%, don't quote me on that, but 70% of all data that comes into a headquarters, indiscriminate of echelon, is not analyzed. There's just too much data coming in to be analyzed, specifically when you're talking about human analysts doing it. Uh, we're looking at how do we utilize artificial intelligence or machine learning to do either a uh, ground assault or a helo assault. You already know that there's some very specific information you have to have to make a decision. That can be done through AI or ML, ground slope, weather mins, uh, illumination, depending upon what the commander wants. Uh, how many HLZs are you going to have in the area? How big are your touchdown points? The intel picture. We should defense. not yeah, right. be going into a meeting and telling the commander, you need to make a decision on this right now. We should have, starting 72 hours out, Hey, we're at about the 60% solution for what this decision is going to end up being. And every day as we get close to that, we get to a point where we can tell the commander, sir, it's decision point time, and here's the two codes, and here's how they fleshed out. And a lot of that works when you, either it's, it's a separate briefing or it's tied within the ATO cycle, because then on an ATO cycle, when folks are already thinking 24, 48, 72, 96 hours out, they're already in that planning cycle. Uh, we, what we did that at 8th Army was a separate part of the uh, of the ONI brief when the 35, the, the chief of plans, uh, chief of FUOPs rather, would discuss those those decision points, and they would they would have a graphic, wasn't very detailed, just enough. Hey, sir, when these conditions are met, we recommend we do this. That's a great follow-up, sir. Um, so back to uh, one of your earlier uh, points, uh, General Masarakia, uh, you said you built a lot of the really good. Uh, practices in garrison as you began in garrison for battle management worked your way through either a CTC rotation or a warfighter and then to deployment uh, granted deployed environments are uh, can be significantly different than a garrison how do you take you know a like a really solid functioning battle rhythm and then start once you transition back to garrison, divest some of the tasks, but still manage to maintain, you know, just that level of uh, interactivity between your staff primaries and uh, not lose all of the things that you gained during a deployment. So whether it's deployment in the field or garrison, if the battle rhythm was created correctly, based off of the information requirements to hire, the commander's decision-making process and timelines, it should transition in and out. The fidelity of certain meetings might go down because you're not dealing with a targeting decision board with release of weapon systems. He's still got a targeting decision board. That might be a codel coming into the installation that we're going to have to execute with. Uh, so it still, it still happens. I will tell you the biggest question I, I always got asked was, hey, if we see something wrong with the battle rhythm, when should we execute changing it immediately? If it doesn't work, it's not going to get better with just time change it immediately and rearrange the battle rhythm to make sure that it's functioning because two purposes of the battle rhythm commander's decision making cycle and informing higher headquarters well and it really helps if you keep and we did this in korea and i thought it was brilliant and it, you know a lot of the times during an exercise your meetings and you can't maintain that discipline because your habits have been inculcated during garrison. And if you would execute your garrison battle rhythm events with the seven minute drills and the same kind of, hey, this meeting's an hour, command and staff, training meeting, uh, USR, pick one, they should be done the same way. 
same thing of, of, of snappy and punchy, and, and it builds that expectation. So someone may be new to the team, but hey, listen, this is how we do meetings here in this brigade or this battalion or this division. And guess what? When we go to the field, we do the meetings the same way, just under different conditions. Uh, the standards are the same. Um, gentlemen, as we uh, kind of draw to the close of today's podcast, a lot of really good discussion. I uh, just wanted to ask each one of you for looking at our audience, what's the one key takeaway you would give them in regards to having an efficient and effective battle rhythm? Colonel Barnett, I'll start with you. Discipline. Follow, follow the rules. You got a few. Sorry, sir. <laughs> I, I, I'm two years ahead of you from Norwich. I got to jump in whenever I can. Um, discipline in a process. Read the doctrine and know your boss. And I'll leave something on the table for General Maz. Mr. Creed? I'll go with focus. Know why you're there and stick with it. It only works with discipline. Uh, can't harp on that enough. The second thing I'll, I'll say, though, is spend the hard time up front ensuring that the battle rhythm is correct. You can come to a battle rhythm and it'll look really good on a PowerPoint slide of how this thing is supposed to work. But once you put it to test and it's not right, you're going to have to go all the way back. It's like not doing mission analysis. How do you know you didn't do good mission analysis? Because you're doing it again later in the process. Yep. Battle rhythm is the exact same way. Yeah. It's got to be rehearsed and practiced. Gentlemen, uh, thank you again uh, for your time and expertise today on the subject of battle rhythm. We'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us today. And we remind you to tune in next time for part two knowledge management, the road to war. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit that subscribe button on either Apple or Google Podcasts to get new episodes automatically. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at US Army Doctrine for updates from the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate on new episodes, as well as our Doctrine Digest and Foxhole Fundamental Video Shorts, audiobooks, and most importantly, new doctrine. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Major Rich Diggle, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.